New California case law, new California statutes, that's what I discuss in this podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Eric Ganchi. I'm a trial lawyer at Casey Gary in San Diego, and I focus my practice on TBI, brain injury cases, and trials. I'm also a total nerd about tracking new laws, as this emerging and developing info can win and lose cases. Please enjoy my podcast, The Ganchi Law Update, a Casey Gary podcast. A quick check regarding product defect cases. Here is some food or law for thought from a California published case regarding design defect. The case is called Camacho versus JLG Industries Incorporated, cited as 2023, 93 Cal App 5th, 809. That'll be in the show notes. In Camacho, plaintiff was on a lift and the plaintiff didn't latch a chain to protect against him from falling out and then he fell. Plaintiff argued design defect. The trial court granted defendant's motion for directed verdict, and then this court reversed the trial court's judgment. Defense tried to argue this, saying, plaintiff did not testify, and there's no evidence as to why he did not latch the chain. Similarly, another person did not testify, he forgot to latch the chain. In fact, no witnesses testified about why the plaintiff or the other person failed to latch the chain. And the court here says, ah, this is a red herring. And the court gives great language about a design that invites human error. And the court says this, although plaintiff did not testify, it does not matter whether the chain was not latched because he forgot, because he decided it was unnecessary, because the glass got in the way, or any other possible reason Plaintiff's design defect theory was that the active safety device, the manual chain, invited human error regardless of the reason, and the design was dangerous given the reasonable alternative passive safety device, the self-closing gate, that would have prevented his fall and severe injuries. Can an unanswered and thus admitted request for admissions, RFA, be used against only one party or against other parties? This question comes from Inzunza versus Naranja, cited as 2023 WL5344893, which was filed August 21, 2023. This case is a wrongful death case against a defendant driver who is driving for a company, so plaintiffs alleged vicarious liability against the company. During litigation, despite receiving multiple extensions of time to respond, the driver failed to, ser- um, failed to serve any responses to the RFAs. Thus, plaintiff filed a motion for an order that the truth of each matter specified in the request for admissions propounded on Inzunza be deemed admitted under CCP section 2023.280 subdivision B. In opposition to that motion, The driver's counsel explained they lost contact with the driver despite multiple attempts to reach him, including by hiring two private investigators. Some of these same RFAs, plaintiff also served on the company defendant. Um, And the court uh, facts say this. Before trial, plaintiffs filed a motion in limine to preclude defendants from offering evidence, expert opinions, exhibits, writings, testimony, reference or argument contrary to the request for admissions propounded on Inzunza, the driver, which were deemed admitted by court order. With these RFAs and motion and limines, 
the trial court explained that company could present evidence that driver was acting beyond the scope of his employment and therefore company is not vicariously liable. The court ruled the company could not, however, present evidence of comparative fault against the plaintiff. The jury found negligence against company and returned a verdict of 7.6 million. The company appealed on a few issues, one being this issue of RFAs and not being able to introduce evidence of comparative fault given the drivers waived RFA admissions. And the Court of Appeals agreed with the company. Now, on the law. When a party who whom requests for when a party sorry, when a party to whom requests for admissions are directed fails to serve a timely response, the requesting party may move for an order that the genuineness of any documents and the truth of any matters specified in the requests be deemed admitted. This is CCP 2023-280.280, subdivision B. The court shall make this order unless it finds the party to whom a request for admissions had been directed has served before the hearing of the motion a proposed response that substantially complies with the discovery statutes. This is CCP 2023.280, subdivision C. But as relevant here, any matter deemed to have been admitted is conclusively established against the party making the admission, but is binding only on the party that made the admission. One more point about a jury instruction given in this trial on a different issue. The plaintiffs in this case, um, the plaintiffs were the stepchildren of the decedent. The trial court gave the following instruction proposed by plaintiffs. Under California law, a stepchild is permitted to bring a claim for wrongful death if they are dependent, to some extent, upon the decedent for the necessaries of life. No strict formula can be applied to determine this. If a stepchild received financial support from their parent, which helped them in obtaining the things which one cannot and should not do without, then that stepchild is dependent upon their parent and is qualified to bring a wrongful death claim. Such things may include, but are, not, but are not limited to, shelter, clothing, food, utilities, car payments, medical treatment, and other customary living expenses. So here, the defendant company argued the instruction erroneously implied that dependents could incur at any point in the stepchild's life rather than present dependents. And the court disagreed in saying, we are, <laughs> we are unpersuaded. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> They further say, indeed, we find defendant's proposed instruction is not any clearer on the temporal issue than the instruction given. We therefore conclude that the trial court did not err by giving plaintiff's proposed instruction, which correctly used present tense in the introductory sentence with the, with the exact language of, quote, a stepchild is permitted to bring a claim for wrongful death if they are dependent to some extent upon the decedent for the necessaries of life. End quote. With all of this, the court reverses the judgment against the company and remands the case for a new trial. Must you identify what documents are produced to each demand for production? We are going to get a little into the weeds with this discussion as I talk about what is required when a party in California responds to a formal discovery request of a demand for production of documents but as cases can have a ton of information to track, this can be very, very important. All of this stems from the case Pollock versus Superior Court, uh, Schuster 
filed July 21, 2023, and cited as 93 Cal App 5th 1348, which will be in our show notes. First, a, a quick step back with compliance with demands for production, there are two steps. Step one, responding to the demand. Step two, <laughs> actually producing the documents. And the court and Pollock says this, for clarity, we wish to maintain the distinction between a formal response to a production demand, i.e. a statement of compliance, representation of inability to comply or assertion of any objections, and the production itself. In Pollock, party one served a demand for production on party two, and party two responds to that demand, but in the reply, did not identify which documents would relate to which specific requests. The parties then meet and confer, and party two produces a 46-page table with two columns explaining which documents go to which demand for production. And party one says, this is not good enough, as party one wants party two to identify which documents go with, which, with what demand in party two's verified response. So, is that part required? Must a party identify the documents produced in the verified response? The court here says no, and further says this. Based on the language, the plain language of California Code of Civil Procedure, Section 2031.210, a statement of compliance need not identify the specific re requests to which each document will pertain. Said, said in another way, Party 2 argued CCP Section 2031.210 does not require that responses to a request for production include a description of which documents apply to which requests. And the court says, we agree. The ultimate rulings here are this. There is no requirement that a response identify a document with, this with a specific request to which the document applies. There is no requirement that a document production be verified, nor that documents be Bates labeled. Must a government claim form estimate damages? Filing a government claim form can be very, very important when taking action against a California government entity. <clears throat> but it's not just filing the claim, it's also complying with the rules for filing the government claim. This recent case, AS versus Palmdale School District, filed uh, August 28th, 2023, and it's cited right now as 2023-WL5524107, gives thoughts and analysis about how the government claim must state damages to be in compliance with California Government Code Section 910. First, what is the general law with all of this? Per California Government Code Section 910, a claim shall be presented by the claimant or by a person acting on his or her behalf and shall show all of the following. And it's going to be A through F. A, the name and post office address of the claimant. B, the post office address to which the person presenting the claim desires notices to be sent. C, the date, place, and other circumstances of the occurrence or transaction which gave rise to the claim asserted. D, a general description of the indebtedness, obligation, injury, damage, or loss incurred so far as it may be known at the time of presentation of the claim. E, the name or names of the public employee or employees causing the injury, damage, or loss, if known. And F, this is the one that's at issue with this case. The amount claimed, if it totals less than $10,000, as of the date of presentation of the claim, including the estimated amount of any prospective injury, 
damage or loss insofar as it may be known at the time of the presentation of the claim together with the basis of computation of the amount claimed. If the amount claimed exceeds $10,000, no dollar amount shall be included in the claim. However, here's the big part, it shall indicate whether the claim would be a limited civil case. Um, and the, as I've been uh, stressing, the main issue in this is with um, 9 tenths of F about the money. So what happened in AS versus Palmdale with this case? Plaintiff alleges an elementary school teacher grabbed and twisted AS's arm, that's a minor, so we're not saying the full name, and the full name is not in the court documents either. Um, so uh, there are, there's an allegation that um, a teacher grabbed and twisted AS's arm and his mother and his guard and guardian at litem filed a complaint form with the Palmdale School District on his behalf. The complaint, the complaint form here included a number of prompts and questions. As relevant here, the form requests responses um, to two prompts, describe the incident or complaint, and what is your suggestion to resolve the problem? And appellant's mother replied to both, please see back, back of the paper. In replying to those questions, the mother informed defendant of the incident that led to plaintiff's injuries, but there were no indication that plaintiff was seeking to hold defendant liable for damages for the incident. All indications from the form were that plaintiff was seeking discipline against the teacher for the incident, not damages. The court holds here, the appellant specified several administrative actions which he wanted the district to take, but did not state he was seeking monetary damages and made no attempt at all to estimate even roughly an amount of damages or state whether or not the claim would be a limited civil case. Thus holding the complaint form does not substantially comply with section 910. And that concludes this episode of the Ganchi Law Update. Thanks for listening, subscribing, and sharing. Please visit cglaw.com for further blogs, case updates, and news about our firm. That's CG Law, as in Casey Gary Law, dot com.